All right. Second Samuel chapter 24. You kind of get to chapter 23, it looks like it'd be a good ending to the book. Like you get all these mighty men listed out, and you know, it kind of seems like it sums up David's reign and all right, we're done. And then all of a sudden, you got this little hanging chad on the end of Second Samuel. And it's like, what's this? And you just kind of read through it. And it's one of those chapters you're like, what is that talking about? <laughs> and so we have it here. Remember, these last few chapters are kind of like an appendix to the book. They, they kind of will look back at certain events that occurred toward the end of David's reign. They don't necessarily flow in order. And here we have this event of this plague that's going to come upon Israel, you know, at the end of David's reign. The whole theme of the book of 2 Samuel is a heart after God. And while David isn't a perfect king by any stretch, um, he has provided a good example for us of what a heart after God is. It's interesting, the Scriptures, they line up David's failures side by side with his heart after God. And so chapter 24 provides a fitting conclusion to the story of David by calling attention not only to his ambition and pride, but also to his humility and to his remorse over his sin. And thus, the end of 2 Samuel, it gives us a taste of what a man fully after God's heart is like. And yet, because we do see the shortcomings in David's life, it also leaves us wanting the real deal. What does it look like when someone is really fully after God's heart? It leaves us wanting the Messiah to come. <laughs> That's what it leaves us with. For Jesus is the man whose heart is completely after God's heart. So chapter 24, we begin in verse 1. It says, And again the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. For the king said to Joab, the captain of the host, which was with him, Go now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, and number you the people, that I may know the number of the people. Joab said unto the king, Now the Lord your God add unto the people, however many soever they be, a hundredfold, and that the eyes of my lord the king may see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? We have this interesting interaction between David and Joab, but before we get to that interaction, we need to understand the setting here in verse 1. It starts off with a cryptic phrase, and again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. What do you mean again? We've just been talking about mighty men, and David has this awesome prophecy, you know, that he gives at the end. Before that, it's an awesome song he writes. What do you mean again the Lord was angry with Israel? It's been a while since we've seen anything like that. The last time we saw that God's anger was kindled against Israel it was way back when David incorrectly transported the ark to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 6. It could possibly be a reference to the three-year famine that we saw in 2 Samuel 21, where the Lord sent that famine to Israel because of Saul's attempt to exterminate the Gibeonites had never been dealt with, never been repented of. So maybe that's, that was what the reference is here. But either way, this is not something that occurred recently in our, our reading memory here. So when it says, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled, we have to understand this is a point where, where God is moved to take action. The Bible says God is angry at sin every day, but this word kindles, it mean, kindled, it means to move to take action based on your anger. So what did Israel do 
that made God so angry that he had to take action this time? The Bible does not tell us. Now, we do know, because if you read First Chronicles, it, it parallels Second Samuel. It, it, when you read through the, the account, you'll see some similar things. It's not the same, but you'll see similar events lining up. And we know that this event occurs toward the end of David's reign because First Chronicles 21 says that it occurred during David's final preparations for the temple construction. We know he did that at the end of his life. So David was planning all that out with Solomon just before he died. So that's the time frame when this happens. Now, what else is going on during that time? Well, we know that during the latter part of David's reign that there were multiple coup attempts in Israel during that time. It's possible that the Lord was angry with the strife and the division in the nation. It's possible it was something that's not even mentioned in the Scriptures. But whatever Israel had done, God sensed a need to take action. He needed to bring judgment. And so with his anger kindled, now he had to take action. It says he moved David against them, Israel, to say, go number Israel and Judah. Now you read that and you think to yourself, wait a second, Lord. Why are you inciting David to do something wrong? Well, the word he here is not in the original language. You say, why is it here then, Pastor Will? Well, the word moved is masculine, so the, the personal pronoun is implied. Many times in foreign languages, you don't actually have a, a pronoun. They don't have words for pronouns. They just have verbs that are written a certain way that kind of mean that the, the subject, the pronoun subject is implied. The problem, though, is translating that subject, he, is misleading. The word moved here, it means to speak to someone in a way that encourages them to perform certain behavior. Well, James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says something very clearly. It says in James 1, 13, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. That is clear language, don't you think? God doesn't tempt any man ever is the language there. That means that he here cannot be God or the Bible's not true because then we have a contradiction. Now, since the writer of 2 Samuel leaves the he unexplained, we need to find the explanation for who the he is elsewhere in Scripture, which we can. So if we look at 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1, we read something very interesting. This writer feels it necessary to explain the he to us. If you read 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1, it says, and who stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel? Satan. So the he here, there's no pronoun here that ties it back to the Lord whose anger was kindled. The he here is just an undefined he, but from other places in Scripture, we see that that he that's implied is the enemy of our souls. And so what we see here is that sometimes the worst judgment God can bring upon us is to remove his hand of protection. And that's what happened. Remember what happened with Saul? Saul kept being stubborn with the Lord, stubborn with the Lord, and the Lord moved his hand off and he allowed the enemy to get him. And so we see here that God moves his hand away from David, not completely, 
But because, we'll explain this in a second. You say, why did David? It doesn't say David did anything wrong yet. No, we're going to get to this. But God does it with Israel by allowing. He removes his hand from Israel, not David, but Israel by allowing Satan to tempt their leader to do something that was opposed to Israel's well-being. And this action that would be opposed to Israel's well-being would be taking a census. Go number Israel and Judah. Now, Israel was allowed to take a census, but God gave specific instructions for how it was to be done. In Exodus chapter 30, the law of Moses makes it very clear. Verses 12 through 16, when you take the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom or an atonement for his soul unto the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. This they shall give every one that passes among them that are numbered, half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary, and then he tells us a shekel is 20 geras, a half shekel shall be the offering to the Lord. Everyone that passes among them that are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering unto the Lord. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel when they give an offering unto the Lord to make an atonement for your souls. And you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel, and you shall appoint it or give it for the service of the tabernacle of the congregation, that it may be a memorial unto the children of Israel before the Lord to make an atonement for your souls. Say, man, why all the strict rules about just taking a census? Why the need to atone for taking a census? Why the strict rules? Well, in that culture back then, a man only had right to count what belonged to him. That's how they operated. No human leader owned the nation of Israel. None. God owned the nation of Israel. So not even a king could just take a census when he wanted to. God could initiate a census, and he did a few times in the Scripture. We have record of that. But a man could not without atoning for the action. Ordering a census that was not ordered by God was considered a shortcoming because the motivation would either be pride or unbelief. Pride, because you want to just see how great your rule has become, or unbelief, because you didn't trust that the Lord would prosper your reign. I want to know we got enough people to fight the battles. I want to know we got enough people to pay the taxes. I want to know we got enough people to make sure we can get things done. Either way, it was a shortcoming. And so they had to make atonement when they would do it. And so, how does David handle this temptation from the enemy? not well. (laughs) Verse 2, for the king said to Joab, the captain of the host, which was with him, go now through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, Dan being the northernmost city, Beersheba being the southernmost city, and count the people that I may know the number of the people. I kind of find it funny that we, last we checked, Joab's not even in the mighty list of mighty men, but here it lists him as the what? Oh, he's got his old job back again. This is like the fourth time that he's been fired and rehired. He's the gift that keeps on giving. Joab, when he hears these orders, he says to the king, (laughs) I love it. Now, (laughs) the Lord your God add unto the people. Let me make one thing clear, David. I I want our, our nation to grow. 
And however many sober they be, whatever they are now, I want the Lord to add unto it a hundredfold. I want us to be bigger. I want us to, to grow and prosper. And I want you, the eyes of my Lord the King, to see it. I want you to be able to see the, the prosperity that we're experiencing in our nation under your rule. But why does my Lord the King delight in this thing, this idea? What's got this into your heart, David? The answer, of course, is pride. David wanted to see how great a kingdom he had built. And when Joab senses this, he hopes that forcing David to explain why to him will help David to see that pride and realize that this is a bad idea. Now, <laughs> when someone like Joab is worried about your decisions being sinful, you should listen. Because Joab is an expert at violating God's commands when he doesn't think obeying God is in David's best interest. He's an expert at that. Well, God says, don't do this. I don't care. That's, that, this is what's best for David. I'll go murder this guy. That's how he operated. He was intensely loyal to David, not so much the Lord. So this is a guy who's an expert on, on when he thinks it's okay to break God's commands, when it's in David's best interest. And so by him saying this to David, he's saying, David, I don't, I don't think this is in your best interest. But David is not swayed, even though Joab brings in some reinforcements. Look at verse 4. Notwithstanding, the kings were prevailed, not just against Joab, but against the captains of the host. All of David's military commanders were against this idea. Many of the mighty men we read about in chapter 23, they're against this idea. And so, <laughs> Joab and the captains of the host, they go out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. These are not just individuals that David, that worked in his army. These are people that loved him. Probably all of them had bid with him from the beginning in the cave of Adullam. And I would suggest to you that when that many people who love you are telling you to think twice about the decisions you're about to make, you should listen. When that many people who love you are saying that, you should probably listen. In Proverbs eleven fourteen, it tells us about the wisdom of listening to others who care about you and who are wise. In Proverbs eleven fourteen, it says, where no counsel is, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. It's a safe place. David does not listen to them. He takes Satan's bait, which leads God to God being angry with him as well. Now, you might be saying, why would God involve David if God needs to judge the nation for their sins? Why put David in such a precarious position? I don't think the Lord was simply putting David in a precarious position. I, wanna, I had a lot of scriptures I wanted to share, but I'm going to just share one section of scripture tonight because it kind of sums up the point. But you find other places in scripture that will say the same thing. In Ezekiel 22, Verses 29 through 31, the Lord has just been laying out just like what a mess Jerusalem is, the leadership of Israel is, at this, Judah is at this point in time. And so when we get to verse 29, he's closing out and he says in Ezekiel twenty-two twenty-nine, 29, the people of 
the land have used oppression. They've exercised robbery. They've vexed the poor and the needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. I mean, these are bad times. Just before that, he said, the prophets are prophesying and not from me. The governing leaders are, are fleecing the people to line their own pockets. And so in light of this, in verse 30, the Lord says, I sought for, and I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge, to make up the gap in the wall, to stand in the gap in the wall. They should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore have I poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I recompensed upon their heads, says the Lord God. When God allowed the enemy to tempt David, Israel's leader, because of their sin and his need to judge their sin, God was looking for any excuse not to do so. He was looking for David to stand in the gap, to say, no, I'm not going to go the same direction. And so by allowing Satan to tempt David, a good response from David would give the, reason, give the Lord a reason to hold off on judgment. It would give him an excuse to not act on his anger against the nation. But David doesn't respond well to this opportunity. He takes the bait of the enemy instead of standing with the Lord and standing in the gap for the people. And not only does David exhibit a shortcoming in wanting to take a census, but he completely ignores God's command to take atonement money to offer to the Lord to make up for that decision. And so in verse 5, it says, Joab and the captain of the host, they go out. Verse 5, they passed over Jordan and pitched in Eroer. So passing over Jordan, basically the journey they're going to take, they're going to go from Jerusalem east over the Jordan River then on the other side where the two and a half tribes were, then they're going to go north, then they're going to go west, and then they're going to come south. So it's kind of a different route to take. It's not a, like a full circle. But Israel at this point in time is, is kind of more like a, like a P. It's not like a circle. It's not like a, 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 just a square nation or a rectangle nation. Uh, you have that top half of the Transjordan that belonged to them at that time. So they hit that first, go north, west, and then they go all the way down to the south of Judah. And that's what we read about here. They passed over Jordan River, pitched an arrow air on the right side of the city that lies in the midst of the river of Gad and toward Jezer. Then they come to Gilead, so now they're moving north in the Transjordan, and then to the land of Tatim Hodshi. And they came to Dan Ja'an above the Zidon, so now we're coming up and going west. They came to the stronghold of Tyre, now we're on the west coast, and to all the cities of the Hivites and of the Canaanites. And then they went out to the south of Judah, even all the way down to Beersheba. So they come all the way straight down Israel. And so when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave up the sum of the number of the people under the king, and so there were in Israel, these are all the northern tribes, there were 800,000 valiant men that drew the sword. And the men of Judah, there were 500,000 men. So Israel is prospering during this time. The census takes a while, takes a little bit over nine months. I like to think of it that God gave David almost a year to repent. A year to do it the right way if you're going to do it at all, if you're going to go through with such foolishness. 
I think one of the questions I get asked a lot when people read this chapter in their Bible and they go, Pastor, well, this is weird. Why is God tempting David? Why is this chapter here? Like, why is God so harsh? Like, I mean, we're going to read about some heavy things here. People, in fact, will often use this chapter to say, well, this is why I could not follow the Lord. He's, He's mean. While that may be the case that people may claim that, I see God's patience all over this chapter. A harsh God would have jumped in immediately to bring judgment, not wait nine months. But God does eventually bring judgment. In 1 Chronicles 27, 24, it tells us that Joab doesn't even get to finish the census. In 1 Chronicles 27, 24, it tells us, Joab the son of Zeruiah began to number, but he did not finish because there fell wrath for it against Israel. Neither was the number put in the account of the chronicles of King David. So before Joab could finish a sentence, God brings some kind of judgment. The Bible does not tell us how God's judgment initially fell. But when David got word of what was happening, that clearly God was doing something, he realized how big he had blown it. Look at verse 10. And David's heart smote him. After that, he had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly, and that I have done. And now I beseech you, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. When it says his heart smote him, it means his conscience told him this was his fault. It's your fault, David. So David, he, he confesses to the Lord. He says, I have sinned, not just sinned, I've sinned greatly. And what I have done. I'm so far from your standard, God, with how I've candled this situation. And so he prays. His request is this. I beseech you. I beg you, God. Oh, Lord, take away. Remove from me the iniquity. Remove from the, uh, the iniquity of your servant. The iniquity just means the guilt. It means a judicial state of liability for the wrong you've done. Remove my liability. Take, take away my guilt for I have done very foolishly. There is no excusing what David did. He doesn't kind of pretty it up and say, well, you know, I was put in a really bad situation. I had a really bad day. It was a bad month. None of those things. He just says, I have done foolishly. The word foolishly means to not act correctly on the information that's available to you. David had God's word. He had instructions on how to take a census if you're going to do it when God didn't order it. And he had not acted correctly on the information that was available to him. Now, while David didn't always make the right decisions, for the most part, his heart was very sensitive to respond correctly when he realized he fell short of God's standards. Now, some might say, well, David should have known this was wrong before he did it. True. (laughs) But how many times have you and I made decisions that clearly violate God's standards that we know? I am very thankful that the Bible does not hide its hero's failures. I'm very thankful that I don't read things like 2 Samuel 24, one doesn't say, and Satan moved David against them during a very trying time in David's life. When him and the wife were getting along real well or he was going through an illness, or he had been, you know, last two years he'd been depressed. I'm so glad it doesn't give any of those excuses. It just says, David messed up. The Bible does not hide its hero's failures. Its pages are relatable to us, and therefore they are helpful to us because we often do the same things the same way. 
And while David can be blamed for the wrong that he did, he should be commended for coming clean with God. Now, when people say, okay, well, this should have been the end of it. Why is God going to bring judgment? If you've read ahead, you know a lot of people die. Why is God still killing people? I mean, David confesses his sin. Remember, this didn't happen because God was angry at David. This happened because God was angry with the nation. God didn't do this because David did this. God was already going to bring judgment. And so while David can be blamed for the wrong he did, this isn't just because of his sin. God was angry at the nation before David did this, and so God doesn't answer David's prayer this way. He says, just remove my sin. And the Lord goes, it's more than just your sin. He doesn't just remove it. Instead, he sends the prophet Gad to David with some options for judgment, not against David, but against the nation. Because David didn't stand in the gap, now God's going to bring judgment against the nation. Listen, you can read this chapter and you can go, man, God's just mean. You know, I mean, David, I mean, he makes a mistake, but I mean, you know, Satan tempted him. That happens to all of us, right? Now God's going to kill all these people who had nothing to do with David's decision. If that's how you're reading the chapter, you're not reading it correctly. It's important that we understand how this happens. The nation was in sin. And so when David doesn't stand in the gap, that was his failure. God proceeds with the judgment on the nation. And he sends the prophet Gad to David with some options for that judgment. Verse 11, for when, which should be translated so then, so when David was up in the morning, the word of the Lord came unto the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, go and say unto David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things, choose you one of them that I may do it unto thee, it's not David, but to the nation. A seer is just another name for a prophet, one who receives and communicates a message from God. This is the second appearance of Gad the prophet. When we first met him, David was hiding from Saul in the king of Moab's palace in 1 Samuel 22.5. And uh, if you remember, God sent Gad to tell David, get out of here, you don't belong here. It's fine if you want to you keep your parents here to keep them safe from Saul, but you need to go back in the land. And David did Gad was likely a graduate from Samuel's School of Prophets. We're going to open a School of Prophets next week. <laughs> Gad and Nathan seemed to be permanent advisors in David's court. That's what a, the seer title is. But this time he's not really serving so much as an advisor as God's messenger. And so he runs this message to David, and he, and he says to him, I got, you got three choices, buddy. Verse 13, so Gad came to David and told him and said unto him, shall seven years of famine come unto you in the land? Or will thou flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or that there should be three days pestilence in your land? Now advise and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. And so it's probably not, well, it's not the answer David wanted. David made the request, Lord, just take away my sin. Just forgive it and let's move on. And the Lord says, I'm not just going to forgive it and move on. There needs to be discipline in the nation. And so the options he gives are seven years of famine, be at the mercy of nature, three months of running from your enemies, be at the mercy of other people who hate you, or three days of pestilence. It means a pandemic spread of sickness that causes widespread death. In other words, be at the mercy of God right? Which do you pick? 
I'm a little triggered, so I don't know if I would have picked the pandemic. (laughs) But we're going to give David a pass. I love the last words, though. He gives him his options, and then he says this, now advise and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. That's fascinating. You know, if I come to somebody and I say, here's your three options, and, and I say, really think about this. It's because there's well, only one of those options is a good one, right? Like there's only one, I mean, I don't know if good's the right word, but there's only one option basically that, there, in other words, there's a best option right now. May not be the easiest option, but there's a best option right now, and I want you to think about the decision you're going to make. And that's kind of the lingo here of, that Gad's bringing to him after he gives God's message. He turns to me, he goes, now advise, which means to find out, search out. Find out, search out, and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. That fascinates me. He doesn't just say choose. He says, find or figure out what your answer is going to be, and I'll relay it back to the Lord. Why couldn't David just say it there and God hear it? Why did God give David a choice at all? I have two thoughts on this. First off, David had resisted Joab and his other military leaders' counsel about this being a bad idea. David had already ignored, either ignored God's rules from Moses about taking a census or had found some excuse to disobey God's laws. Then David had nine and a half months to talk to God about this one-on-one. When we consider that pride was the original source of David giving into Satan's temptation, we can also see that he had not humbled himself at all, at all these steps during the process. If David is truly repentant, he's going to need to show it by humbling himself. And so, David, you're going to give me your answer, and I'm going to take it to the Lord. Why is that so important, to humble yourself? Because God wants to be gracious. But the Scripture says a requirement to experience grace is humility. For God resists who? The proud, but He gives grace to who? The humble. So that's a first thought here. A second thought, God is always looking for an excuse to be gracious. That was why He originally allowed Satan to tempt David. And what we see here in these options is there's still an opportunity for God to be gracious. If David is willing to ponder what he knows about the Lord and trust the Lord even in judgment. Thankfully, David does ponder and he makes the right choice. Verse 14, And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. And then he pauses. What am I going to pick? The word great strait means to be confined in a tight area, to be in intense trouble with not a whole lot of options out. When we have been living in disobedience and we begin to experience the consequences of doing so, I don't know about you, but I often look to the Lord to get me out of this mess, and I don't want to experience any difficulty getting out of it. Sometimes God does that, right? He just gets us out of it, and we go, whew, that could have gone really bad. But more often I have found with the Lord in my life, He does not just let me get out of it. More often the options in front of me are difficult, and all of them contain some kind of discomfort. 
some type of thing I don't want to do or go through. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, we read, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. For he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. That is a basic principle in Scripture. It's worded that way, but you'll find it all throughout Scripture. It's like a spiritual law, so to speak. And so I must never become angry with God because He doesn't give me an option that completely removes the discomfort that comes from my disobedience. Part of the reason that David is able to choose the best option of these three is his recognition that he does not deserve to get out of this with no consequences. And if you're willing to recognize that same truth, that will be the first step to making the best decision moving forward. It's when David realizes, he goes, all of these are bad. But as he ponders and he takes the advice of Gad, he says this, let us fall now into the hand of the Lord, for His mercies are great, and let me not fall into the hand of man. Isn't that fascinating? He doesn't answer it the way it was phrased to him. He doesn't say, three days pestilence. No. He thinks about it and he goes, nature? Can't reason with that. That cat, she does what she wants. My enemies? I don't want to fall into the hands of men. But the Lord, let us fall now. The word now means please. When David looked at the situation correctly, he knew this was the only option to take. Why? Let us fall now into the hands of the Lord. Why? Because his mercies are great. This is not that word chesed, which refers to his loyal love. It refers to like a family or a brotherly love. You know, when your, your loved ones do something, for lack of a better term, stupid, your child makes a decision and you're kind of like, what? You did what? I went on the thing you told me not, not to go on. I fell down. The thing fell on me just like you said it would fall on me. You know, and you know, sometimes when I hear other people do that, I'm just like, well, that's what happens when you're dumb. <laughs> but there's a part of me when that's my kid. My wife comes to me blubbering like that. (laughs) Then your heart goes out to him. And even though your first thought might be, well, I told you that was a bad idea. You know, you also kind of wrap your arms around him. That's this kind of love. It's a family or a brotherly love. It's a compassion David knew that God saw Israel as his people, no matter what he and what they had done. He doesn't understand about their sin yet. He has no clue. He is totally ignorant of why God's doing all this. But he knew that God saw them all as his people. And he knew that as such, his love and his compassion for them was huge. Can the same be said for people? in particular, our enemies? No. Can the same be said about our fallen world? Our fallen world doesn't show mercy at all. And so, 
he says, let us fall into the hand of the Lord, please, for his mercies are great. Let me not fall into the hand of man. And so, Gad takes David's answer to the Lord, and the three-day pandemic of sickness begins, verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning even unto the time appointed. Started it right that morning as soon as Gad gave David's answer to the Lord. The time appointed would be three days. So the Lord sent it, and it's moving across the land. It says, and there died of the people from Dan even to Beersheba 70,000 men. And yet even though the statement here says that the Lord sent the pestilence to start that morning and to end after three days, the pestilence doesn't make it a full three days. Like David hoped, God, because of his love for them, was merciful. Look at verse 16. And here it gets a little weird again. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem, this is the first thing we hear about an angel. Apparently he was in charge of this plague. We see angels dish out sickness in the book of Revelation, right? When they pour out their bowls or they blow a trumpet, we see sometimes it affects people's health. Most of the time, sickness that we experience or the others we see them experience is just a part of living in a fallen world. But sometimes it is supernatural. Sometimes it's an attack from the enemy. And sometimes it's discipline if you're his child from God, or if you're not, it's judgment from God. And so this angel, this is supernatural, not natural. When the angel, it says, stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it. The word destroy here does not mean to wipe it out. Uh, It means to bring the plague there. And if you bring the plague to Jerusalem, this already fast-spreading disease is going to ruin a city that's as densely packed as Jerusalem is. So this angel, when he's about to bring the pestilence upon Jerusalem, it says, the Lord repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, it's enough. Stay now your hand. And so the angel of the Lord was by the threshing place of Aruna, the Jebusite. Now, we also know in Scripture that it says that God is not a man that he should repent, right? That he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent, right? So what does it mean here that God's repenting? Well, the word doesn't mean to change your mind. It actually means to relent, to cease from a course of action. So we could basically just say that God was moving in a direction, and then he stopped moving in that direction. It's not that he changed his mind, but he just ceased from the current course of action. Why? Well, it doesn't say why yet, but it says concerning the evil. The word evil just means a disaster or calamity. Why does God do it? Well, he tells the angel why. He says, it's enough. It's enough. Now, the word for repent here, it comes from a root word that means to comfort yourself. So God does not change his mind or make mistakes. That's why the Bible says he doesn't lie and he doesn't repent. What this word describes is that when the Lord looked around at the 70,000 who had already died, it broke his heart. And he said to himself, what I've done is enough. You see, the appointed time wasn't three days. The appointed time was when God's justice upon Israel's sin had been satisfied. And here's what I love about our God. Once his judgment for sin had been satisfied, God wouldn't bring even a single extra ounce of judgment. 
not even a single extra ounce. He tells the angel, stop, it's enough. Stay your hand. God is frequently accused of being unfair and unjust. And yet, when you read the Bible, the precision with which God meets out judgment is constantly explained. There is always preciseness and specificity with it. It's never random, you know. God's wrath and justice are never haphazardly meted out in a fit of rage. My justice has been meted out that way sometimes, you know. You're angry. I know you, you guys have never done something like this, you know. But you're in a, you're having intense fellowship with your spouse, right? Intense fellowship. We don't fight. We have intense fellowship. And you take something and you throw it or you punch something or whatever. I never did that. Sometimes when you're angry and you take your wrath out, it's haphazard. Because it just boils over and you just erupt, kind of like, you know, Popeye. Does anybody remember who Popeye is? I'm old. God's wrath and justice are always earned, calculated, and executed to the exactly correct amount, always. Which brings up, I think, an important discussion. When we discuss the topic of eternal judgment in hell, since that is the penalty for those who don't trust in Christ's work on the cross, who don't repent of their sins, and we know that God's judgment is always earned, calculated, and executed to the exactly correct amount. Doesn't that tell you and me just how horrible self-righteousness is? How horrible unbelief is? Rather than try to define self-righteousness and sinfulness in our own terms, doesn't it seem more logical to let the one who knows everything define how awful it is? Since everything he does is thought out, never done haphazardly, never done in a fit of rage, but always earned, calculated, and executed to the exactly correct amount. Well, it gives us a little bit of information here about where the angel stopped his hand, stayed his hand. It says he was by the threshing place of Aruna the Jebusite. So this threshing floor, I don't know where it was, but it tells us it was owned by a Gentile, a Jebusite. Jebus was the original name of the city of Jerusalem. In fact, if we ever go back to Jerusalem, when we go into the city of David, the part where David's at right now, you would, we'll take you to go see Jebus. We'll go underground, way underground, and you'll see some of the walls from the original city of Jebus. So this is a Canaanite who's from that area, that region, who's living in Israel which is, again, just one more evidence, piece of evidence of how David correctly saw Israel's role as being a light to Gentiles. Now, here's where it gets weird. I don't know if everyone else could see the angel bringing the plague. To me, that sounds absolutely horrifying. Like, that's almost as bad as the plague itself. But even if no one else could see this angel, David can And when he does, he cries out to the Lord. Look at verse 17. And David spoke unto the Lord when he saw the angel that smote the people. That is horrifying to me. 
But like, I don't know what, did he see like just the angel like pass over a house and then people got sick? Like, I don't, I don't know like what this looked like. But he's physically seeing the angel and he sees the angel at this point kind of at the, the threshing floor of, of Runa the Jebusite uh, coming to Jerusalem to bring this judgment. And when David said, saw the angel, it says, he spoke unto the Lord and said, Lo, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray you, be against me and against my father's house. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's the requirement, right? To own our sin. David owned his behavior. But David also doesn't have all the information. He's flabbergasted. He goes, Lord, I, I know what I did, but I, what have they done? Why is this happening? He didn't know what God knew. He didn't know that the nation's sin had stirred up God's initial anger. And I think when we see things happen that we don't understand, it's always important to remember that God knows things that we don't know. And this is why I love that rather than accuse God of injustice, David does what good leaders do, what he should have done at the beginning of the chapter. Instead of blaming God, he stands in the gap for others. And he says, let your hand, I pray you, be against me and against my father's house. Lord, if judgment against me isn't enough to satisfy your wrath for what I did, then keep it contained to me and my family. Just please spare everybody else. And in this, David is a picture of Jesus' heart towards sinners. Because rather than judge us, Jesus would rather that he and his father experience the pain of the consequences his justice requires. Isn't that cool? Isn't his love and grace amazing? Oh, how he loves us. That's why we sing songs like that. Oh, what a savior. He would rather put himself in harm's way than us. Well, David doesn't know this yet, but God is done bringing justice for Israel's sin. But we still have the problem that David and Israel have not made things right with God. God isn't just going to forgive and just be done with it. Confession is important, but repentance is also important. So as David makes this confession and he stands in the gap for the people, finally, God sends Gad, the prophet, back to David to instruct him how he can fix this thing. And so verse 18, it says, And Gad came that day to David and said unto him, Go up, rear an altar, build an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So God answers David's prayer, and he provides a way for Israel to experience his mercy, even though the three days aren't up yet. And it's by restoring their relationship with God through a sacrifice. Hebrews 9.22, it says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. God provided a way for all humanity to be restored to him by becoming a man to die for our sins. This is a picture of that. So, verse 19, I love, David, according to the saying of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. That's how you get right with God. We confess our sin, we turn from what we were doing, and we turn towards God in faith, right? That's how you get right with God. Being right with God is a two-sided coin. One, on the one side is a repentant heart, on the other side is a faith that's going to follow the Lord in His ways. And so, the change that David makes is what needs to happen in our lives when we get right with God. 
I was disobeying what God says. Now I'm going to do what God says. And that's where David's at here. Verse 20. And Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and bowed himself before the king on his face upon the ground. And Aruna said, Why is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of you, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. And Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good unto him. Behold, Here's oxen for the burnt sacrifice, threshing instruments and other instruments of the oxen for wood. I mean, build whatever you need to build. Use my own flocks to take care of this. All these things did Aruna. It says as a king, but it means it's vocative. He's actually speaking to the king. It says, you know, all these things does Aruna. He's telling him his name. This is what I'm doing for you, O king. This is what I'm giving unto the king. The Lord your God accept you. May God bless this whole endeavor. Now, the fact that he calls himself David's servant means that even though he's a Gentile, he's a loyal citizen of Israel. The fact that he's willing to make a donation so his fellow citizens can be spared means he's a, he's a nice guy. He's a generous guy. He's got a big heart. But then he says this, the Lord your God accept you. That's a phrase that's almost always used when someone doesn't know the Lord or they're not walking with him. And so this leads me to believe that while this guy might know about Jehovah's ways, he doesn't have a relationship with the Lord. Being a good citizen and donating for the betterment of society doesn't get a person into heaven. He says, may the Lord be well disposed toward your offering. So the plague is stopped. And David says, no, it doesn't work that way. As generous as that might be from you, that's not how we're doing this. Verse 24, and the king said unto Runa, nay, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. And neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which cost me nothing. Here is a final character trait of the person who is after God's heart. Following Jesus costs something. If someone is teaching you differently, they're lying to you. And if you don't embrace that truth, you won't be someone whose heart is like the Lord's. Being a Christian is wonderfully about being loved by God, is it not? But it's also being a vessel that God can pour that love through so it can be poured out upon others. Love is sacrifice. It means denying myself in my marriage, in my parenting, in my approach to my career, and how I share the good news in my service to my brothers and sisters in Christ. It costs something dear to us, our very lives. It would have been the easy path for David to take the donation and go through the motions, but David knew he was a big part of why God judged the nation, and so he needed to make personal restitution. And so David bought the threshing floor and oxen for 50 shekels of silver, and David built there an altar unto the Lord, and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And so the Lord was entreated for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. Now, here's the good news. When I talk about these sacrifices, talk about how being a Christian is about sacrifice, how it costs something, the good news is that's not what we do to get saved. We deny ourselves and take up our cross daily because Jesus already did those things perfectly for us.
he already gave up everything. Jesus is the ultimate man after God's heart. And you read about it in Philippians 2. So we're out of time tonight. But read Philippians 2 again in light of that thought. Because at the start he says, hey, if there's any consolation in Christ, in other words, if if you've experienced any of God's mercy, any of God's love, any of God's comfort, anybody here experienced any of those things? Well, then he goes, get along. Put others before yourself. Be nice. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's the man after God's heart. He's the one who did all this for us. We don't live this way to get saved. We live this way because of what he did to rescue us. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand. Lord, what a great book and what, a, what an interesting chapter for us to study tonight. And we're so grateful because we look at a chapter that looks like it's just full of sin and, and bad choices and judgment, and yet in the midst of it, we have a beautiful lesson that points us to you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being the man after God's heart, for being what we could never be, that we might be saved. So now, Lord, having our sins washed away, being yours forever, never having to, to try to be good enough to be any of that, we recommit ourselves to following your heart, to being that vessel that you can pour your love through to touch others in the same way we experienced it through your sacrifice. So, Lord, we give our lives to you. We want to be men and women after your heart. Lord, even though we might blow it like David, we want to make things right, to have the right mindset, to have that mindset in us that, was in, that you had when you died for us. We give you our lives. We pray that this book, will, the truths of it will stick with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.